So for the, the last three weeks, we've, we've been in a sermon series, which I've called Led by the Spirit. And it's been an exposition of Galatians verses 16 to 26. And um, for those of you who are here, again, you know, on the first week, we talked about what true freedom means. Freedom means from a, a biblical place. And then in week two, we talked about what it means to love our neighbor and then asked the question, who is my neighbor? And we discovered it's often not who we think, right? Last week, we talked about the flesh and the spirit and what those two words mean, uh, according to Paul here, according to scripture. So we were talking about what the flesh looks like and what the spirit looks like. But what we didn't really talk about was how does that manifest? And that's what we're going to be talking about this, this week as we wrap up this short sermon series. We're going to look at what is the fruit of these two ways of living? What is the fruit of the flesh? And what is the fruit of the spirit? Now, obviously, here, fruit, it's just a figurative word for what we produce in our lives. What is what, is, what are the products, what are the results of how we live our lives? What kind of fruit are we producing? And, um, you know, I think of fruit, I think of going to the supermarket. Okay, and we, we go to the, the produce section and you, you're looking through and you're, you're picking your fruit, aren't you? You know, of course, before you pick your fruit, you have the battle, don't you, with the plastic bag that you're trying to put it in. And, you know, you it's not working. He's, you're dying to lick your finger. Come on, admit it. I just want to do this and get it done with. But you can't, right? Because, you know, it's going to freak people out, you know. So you eventually, eventually you get it open. And then there's a hole in it and you have to go to another one and do it again. It's like, it adds about 20 minutes to the length of your grocery shop, doesn't it? But you get the bag open and then you go to the fruit, right? And you start picking through the fruit. And I always say, gosh, aren't we spoiled? Right? Because we're able to, look, you know, pick an apple up and, yeah. It's got a blemish on it. I'm not going with that one. No. Yeah, okay, this one's good. Yeah. And we, we load up with the, with, the, with the fruit. But we reject the ones that don't look so good. You know what that tells me? It tells me that we all have the ability to choose good fruit and to reject bad fruit. If we can do it at a supermarket... We can do it in our own lives, can't we? We have that ability to choose good fruit over bad fruit. You know, Jesus, he talks about the fact that the kind of fruit we produce in our lives identifies us as, as either belonging to God or the world and to the enemy of our souls. Listen to what Jesus says here in Matthew 7, verses 17 to 20. Jesus says, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, will you recognize them. So we can identify one another and which side we belong to by the fruit in our lives. What does, what, what's going on in our lives and what is it producing? And so what Paul does here this morning in our passage is he essentially gives us two lists, neither of which is exhaustive, by the way, but two lists of what our life looks like if we live by the flesh and what it looks like if we live by the Spirit. 
Okay. Now remember last week I made the point that when Paul uses the word flesh, he's not just talking about our body and the skin on our bones and all that, right? That, that's certainly part of it. But he's talking more broadly about our sinful nature. Right? That nature that we all have that we're born with that is hostile to God and his ways. So we have to keep that in mind. When you hear me using the word flesh, it's talking about that sinful nature and everything that that encompasses. So Paul begins by giving us a a list of 15 vices or fruit, rotten fruit, so to speak, that will manifest in our life if we are living according to the flesh. And, you know, he said, here are some of the hallmarks of what it looks like. And, And notice in verse 19, he says they're obvious. These aren't hidden. These aren't subtle. No, they're obvious, right? They're easily recognizable. They're self-evident. So what I want to do here this morning is we're going to take a look at this list, as well as the fruit of the Spirit. And we're going to break down what some of these mean and what they might look like in our lives. And as I was preparing for the message this week, um, I one of the things I did was I looked at every word, every vice that Paul gives us here, and I went back to the Greek and looked up the original word and what does that word mean so that we have a, a, a proper understanding of what Paul means when he uses these words. And as an aside, I want to say something. You know, as your pastor, um, I haven't always been a pastor, right? I had a life before I really came to the Lord. And as I look through this list, I realize that I probably, at some point in my life, indulged almost every one of these. And I say that to you. To say that when I share some of the things I'm sharing this morning, I don't come to you as a holier-than-thou pointing the finger. I come to you as a fellow co-sinner. The only difference is I have pastor before my name. And there's a certain level of spiritual authority that the Lord has seen fit to give me to this church. But other than that, I'm a sinful man like the rest of you. By God's grace, I'm now free. Not that I don't slip up with some of these vices once in a while. But I'm walking in the freedom of that spirit. So I say all that to you just to let you know. I'm not coming at you like this. I'm with you. We're all in this together. So let's look at some of these words. Paul begins with sexual immorality. And the word Paul uses here, it's the Greek word porneia. Porneia. I think you can figure out what word we get in English from that. We get the word porn pornography. Now, in Paul's time, it was predominantly used in the ancient world to refer to sex with prostitutes and uh, its connection to pagan worship and temple prostitutes. You see, a lot of the pagan cultures, their worship services, so to speak, would involve sex with uh, temple prostitutes to gain favor with, with the gods, to bring on fertility, to bring good harvest and crops. And, they, you know, they were pretty sordid events. You know, they, they turn into orgies. And so we see that used a lot in the ancient world, the word porneia for that. But Paul uses this word here that's translated as sexual morality as basically any sexual activity that's outside the bounds and the union of marriage. Right? And so we have to remember something here. Sex is a, it's a good thing. Amen? It's a gift from God. And God has given us a healthy and holy context in which to enjoy sex. And when we take it outside of those bounds, then we are abusing God's good gift to us. Impurity, the second one here, is, it sort of can be connected to that, but it's also just anything that is not good coming out of us. Anything unclean. That can be your mouth, the way you speak. 
There'd be all kinds of things. What about debauchery? Well, this is an interesting one because the definition of the Greek word fear for debauchery says this. It's, it's a vice that throws off all restraint without regard for self-respect or the rights and feelings of others. It lacks public decency. We see a lot of that paraded and celebrated today. Lack of public decency and celebrating things that originate not from the spirit, but from the sinful nature, that desire to rebel against God. What about idolatry? I've talked about idolatry before, and basically idolatry is anything that sets itself up in competition against God in our lives. So anything that sets itself up as competition against God in our lives is idolatry. Anything that we lift up as more important and taking a bigger priority in our lives than God and our relation with him, that's, that's an idol. And it can be subtle. It can be very, very subtle idolatry in our life. Often we don't realize that we're worshiping an idol. Say in a big one, say in American, say in American society, Western society, you know, work. Work, is, work can be a huge idol for a lot of people. People put their work and their career above everything else, above their families, and most importantly, they put it, or badly, they put it above God. Identity. Identity is a huge idol in people's lives this day because now what's happening is we're, we're attaching our identity to all kinds of things like our sexual identity, our gender identity, our identity at work, and we're putting all of that above our identity in Christ. It's saying... No, how I, my identity is more important than who I am in you, Jesus. Entertainment, that can be an idol, can't it? You know, when, when we live just to be entertained and uh, to just constantly be amused, you know how you know entertainment is, is, is an idol in your life, right? I would include things like sports in this. Nothing wrong with enjoying sports and all that, but when it gets to the point where you're doing something instead of being at church on a Sunday morning. You're saying that's more important to me than coming together and worshiping the Lord. And of course, politics is a big one, right? So many people have elevated politics to above God. They talk more about politics than they talk about Jesus. So idolatry, very subtle and can be found in all kinds of things. But the big question you just need to ask yourself is, is this more important to me than God? What about witchcraft? This is sometimes translated sorcery. Well, this is very interesting because the Greek word used here for witchcraft or sorcery, it's the word pharmakia. And it's where we get the word pharmacy from. It's where the, and, and drugs and those kind of things, right? And in Paul's time, witches would use drugs to create lethal poisons to kill people. And they would also use it to enter altered states as part of their, of their pagan worship ceremonies. Fast forward to 2022, and we all know that drugs are, are a huge problem, aren't they, in our society? Right? We're seeing record levels of addiction and overdoses. And the, the danger with drugs is that they are often a gateway that opens the door to and invites the occult and the demonic into your life. It's, it's one of the ways that those things can enter your lives 
is through, is through the use of recreational drugs. And, you know, just like being drunk, when you are high, what you do is you dull and you shut off the receptors that allow you to be open to the Holy Spirit. That's, what, that's, that's where the big problem is, okay? You're entering an altered state and you are shutting off the receptors of the Holy Spirit. Now, I know some might argue, well, actually, I've had some of my most amazing spiritual experiences while being on drugs. How many times do we hear somebody say that? The fact is that is a deception. That was not the Holy Spirit speaking to you when you were high on drugs. But pharmakia is the word that Paul uses there. And, you know, we only see the word pharmakia used in a few other places in the New Testament. But one notable place is in Revelation chapter 9. And I was debating whether to take it here because it's a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's a good one to go down to. Um, You know, turn to your Bibles or follow on the screen. We're going to go to Revelation chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. And the context here, without getting buried in a lot of end time stuff, is that there is a, a scroll with God's judgments on it that has seven seals on it. And the seventh seal has been broken. And the breaking of this seventh seal ushers in the seven judgments of God on the world that are heralded one by one by the sounding of a trumpet. Seven trumpets. And so here in Revelation 9, the sixth trumpet has been sounded. And what this is heralded is, it is, is a judgment of three plagues of fire, smoke and sulfur which we're told in Revelation, kills a third of humanity. This is end time scenario here. And so now we read in Revelation 20 and following. It says, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, There's that word pharmakia again. Their sexual immorality or their thefts. Do you see how there's so many of the same works of the flesh there as we just read in Galatians? And I wanted to read that passage in the context of what we're studying this morning to highlight that pharmakia will be with us right through Christ's return and that we are seeing an uptick in the occult right now. As, as, as we live here, you know, I forgive me if I've shared this story before, but about must have been three or four months ago, I was in Market Basket and, uh, you know, so I get a lot of my illustrations from Market Basket. <laughs> I was in Market Basket and I was paying for my food. And there's, there's one lady at the till running up the, uh, the bill and there's another lady packing the bags, right? You know the drill. And so I recognized the lady packing the bags as somebody who I'd done the funeral service for her mother a couple of weeks prior to that. And I said, oh, hey. And she recognized me. I said, how are you doing? You know, how's, how's things going? And then I thought, oh, here's a little bit of an opportunity to perhaps get the gospel in there, share it with the, uh, with the ladies running up the groceries and, and, you know, maybe invite her to church. And, and, and so I explained to her, I said, I'm a pastor. And, you know, and she said, she looked at me. She said, oh, well, you won't like me. I'm a Wiccan. She said, I'm an ordained witch. I was like, oh, that's well, very nice, sir. She better not be cursing my Cheerios as she's packing them. <laughs> but it was just a reminder like, wow, this, this, this stuff is all around us, you know? And that passage from Revelation reminds us that, yeah, that stuff's going to increase as we get closer to the Lord's return. 
But I also wanted to tie in that verse to point out that many of those same works are connected to the works of the flesh that Paul lists in our passage this morning. And that God's judgment and wrath is going to fall on people who continue to live like that. What about hatred? And em- or sometimes this is translated as enmity. And the definition here is very interesting because it defines so much of what we are seeing in our society today. All right, The definition is it's hostilities between individuals or between communities or political, racial, or religious grounds. It's interesting, isn't it, that the Bible called this out thousands of years ago. There's, there's nothing new under the sun, and yet here we are. Here we are, right where Paul listed it. And remember that this is how we're not supposed to live. We're not supposed to live with enmity towards those who might be politically different or racially or religiously different to us. It's not the fruit of the Spirit. That's the work of the flesh, the sinful nature. Of course, these ties into our next vices, right? Of discord, which is sometimes also translated as strife or quarrelsomeness. Of course, we are full of arguments with one another, especially on social media. And jealousy, they're all interconnected. And then we, we come to fits of rage. Anyone relate? Fits of rage. You know, we're, we're seeing more fits of rage manifest in society, aren't we? There, is, there has been a loosening of self-control over many people. We're seeing an uptick in episodes of, of road rage, random shootings, rage at, at law enforcement. Recently, there were, there were three women who trashed a New York City restaurant because they were charged $1.75 for extra dipping sauce. They flew into a rage and trashed the place. And now they're facing charges for all kinds of things, right? Because they lost it. They couldn't control their temper. They couldn't control their rage. Now, I agree. It's pretty outrageous, $1.75 for some dipping sauce. Right? I'm not stingy. Come on. But you're going to fly into a rage like that and trash the whole place? You know, rage could also be connected to a a sort of being blinded to reason and logic. Have you ever tried to reason with somebody who's in a rage or is so full of anger that they're not hearing anything you say? They don't want to hear what you have to say. And it doesn't matter how logical and reasonable and fact-based it is you're saying, they won't have any of it. You know, we have this, we have this lack of reasoning with one another and being able to have a, a civil conversation and discussion with one another where we can respectfully disagree. Today, that, that's gone out the window, hasn't it? People are not willing to sit down and reason with one another. And instead, everything is fueled by, by feelings. And often these feelings are ones of, of offense, of anger, of outrage. And let, let me tell you something. If a movement or an ideology is fueled by rage and anger, then straight away that is a sign that it is not of the Spirit of God. If its predominant ethos is rage and anger, that is not of the spirit. That is of the flesh. That comes from the sinful nature. 
And we have, we have, as Christians, we have to be aware of this. We have to examine things, discern them, uh, compare them, put them up against the word of the Lord and say, okay, how does this figure? It's, it's a bit like, you know, Aristotle, who used this same word for fits of rage in some of his works. And he said, about the word, he said, it's, he likened it to dogs which start barking before waiting to see if one is a friend or not. You have a dog like that, right? Before they even know who's come to the door, they know somebody's coming to the door. And it's somebody they know. Oh, hey, how are you? Tail starts wagging and stuff. But how many of us react like that, right? We, we, we see something, we hear a story, we, we read a news report, and before knowing if we have all the facts or if it's even really true or anything like that, we're getting outraged about it. And then we get the whole story and we realize, oh, it wasn't that at all. We're like the dogs barking. Because somebody's knocking at the door, not knowing if it's a friend or a foe, just reacting. What about selfish ambition? Well, you know, there's nothing wrong with ambition. There's nothing wrong with being ambitious unless it makes you selfish. That's what Paul's talking about here, selfish ambition. It's that self-seeking pursuit, right, that that says, uh, you know, I'm going to push everybody aside. My career is the most important thing. Getting to the next level, getting to the new position, that's more important than anything else. And I will use whoever I need to to get there. It's It's this mercenary spirit that says I'm out for myself. Dissensions and divisions. I don't really need to dwell on how divided we are right right now. Again, where's this coming from? It's not coming from the spirit, the division that we are experiencing right now. It's coming from the sinful nature of human beings. What about factions? Factions, this is an interesting one because this stems from division in the sense that it's about people identifying by groups that hold similar beliefs to them, opinions and dogmas, that put them in opposition to other groups. We have to be careful in the church about that. We can get very insular. And if somebody thinks a little differently to us, eh. What's interesting here is that the Greek word used for factions, it's this word heresies. And it's where we get the word heresy from. That's where we get the word heresy from. And you know, there's no question that the biggest divides in the church throughout all of history have been because of heresies that have caused people to stray away from God's word. And today, it's exactly what we're seeing. There are many churches, mainline denominations, that are straying from God's word and bowing down to the golden calves and idols of our present day. And they're losing the plot, they're losing their connection to God and the anchor, God's word. You know, in some ways, much of the, the present day church, it's in many ways, it's like Israel of the Old Testament. Because what would happen with Israel? All the time they would be getting swept away and, and corrupted by the pagan practices and culture around them. And this, is, this has happened to a lot of churches today. But thankfully, just like Israel, God would always have a faithful remnant who are faithful to his word and faithful to his teachings. And I really believe our church is one of those places. Envy, fairly self-explanatory, as are drunkenness and orgies. But one thing I would say about those, drunkenness and orgies, is they're connected to this idea of this sense of excess. 
of overconsumption, of, of uh, lack of self-control and discipline. Again, these are, these are signs, works of, of the flesh. Let's take a time out. I, uh, you know, I've been teaching at a summer camp for the last three weeks, a children's theater camp, and I got used to this routine of, you know, you do a little bit of time, and then you have a break, and the kids have a snack. So let's have a snack for a moment and take a breather, because it's quite a list, isn't it? It's quite a list. And you know what? It's not exhaustive. That's not an exhaustive list. Because what does Paul say at the end of all that? He says, drunkenness and orgies and the like. So Paul's saying, hey, this is just a sampling for you. All right? But he's saying, but if I lay these out for you, you get the picture. These are, these are what the fruit or the works of the flesh look like. It's, it's what Paul describes in Ephesians 5.11 as fruitless deeds of darkness. Fruitless deeds of darkness and and he goes on and gives a warning he says i warn you as i did before back in galatians here that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of god as you hear those verses or read those verses you might be sweating a little bit right now because you're probably thinking well i i definitely tick some of those boxes when we look at that list i think there's something in there for everyone isn't there and you might be thinking, boy, I, yeah, I can definitely lose my temper sometimes. I can definitely uh, get into arguments. I can, you know, whatever it is. And you might be thinking, boy, does this, reading what Paul just said there, does that mean I'm, I'm not making it? I'm not, I'm not making it to heaven? Well, the key, key here is those who live like this. That's what Paul says there. Those who live like this. So, You've got to understand, there's a difference between having a slip-up, okay? There's a difference between, uh-oh, I had too much wine last night, or I, I slipped up uh, somehow sexually, or I, I, I flew into a huge rage, like, like I flipped somebody off at the red light or whatever, right? There's a difference between sort of one-offs like that and it being a way of life. You see, Paul's point with listing all these vices has less to do with one particular sin than it does with an entire lifestyle that the sinful nature represents. That's a big difference. And when you look at that list and what it produces, is that how any of you want to live? Somebody raises their hand, I'm going to be worried. (laughs) But is that how any of you want to live? You, You want to live in this place of always being angry, of always being divisive, of always, you know, Getting drunk, getting high, whatever. Is is that how you want to live? I suspect no is the answer. Well, there's a more beautiful, there's a more noble way, there's a more godly, there's a more holy way that will lead to grace upon grace in your life. And it involves making the choice to be led by and walk in the Spirit. Because when you do that... You produce a whole different kind of fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. So we just had the bad news, now here's the good news. And I'm well aware that there have been many pastors and churches, they've done a whole series on the fruit of the Spirit. They'll take one fruit, one piece of the fruit every week and, and do a sermon series on that. My goal is not to do that with a sermon series. It is to contrast the works of the flesh with the works of the Spirit. Love, joy, 
peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's a beautiful list of attributes, isn't it? Notice something. Paul begins with love. That's the first one he begins with, and that's deliberate, because if you don't have love, and if you don't begin from a place of love, then none of the rest will follow. Love is at the root and the core of all these, this fruit of the Spirit. And you know, the love we're talking about here, it's not the love that often the world sort of thinks of when we see you know, bumper signs like love is love, but it's, it's agape. It's a, it's a selfless, it's a sacrificial love, like the love Jesus displayed for us on the cross by giving himself for us. That's the kind of love we're talking about. Joy. This is so much more than the joy that comes from happiness or, or contentment. It's, it's not about the joy you get that's based on your circumstances. You know, when life's going good, oh, I'm joyful and I'm full of, full of happiness. And when things aren't great, then I, I lose my joy. No, it's not that kind of joy. It's the joy that comes from our identity in Christ and knowing where our eternal destination is going to be. Have you ever, <clears throat> have you ever planned for a big vacation? Okay. You decide, all right, this is, I'm going to pull out the stops. I'm going to spend a little bit of extra money. We're going to go away. We're going to have a really good vacation, right? And you, you plan your, your flights or your, your journey. You book your hotels. You figure out where you're going to stay. You've checked out the city and the places that you're going to be visiting and all the tourist things you want to do. And sometimes you may have been planning this like a year out. Some people two years out. But you plan it. And then what do you do when everything's booked? You get excited. You start looking forward to it. You start, ah, only three months to go, only two months to go, right? And when you're having a rough day at work or whatever, you think, well, no, this is going to keep me going because I know I have this vacation coming and I can hang on for this vacation. Well, guess what? Our whole life is like that. Our whole life is preparation for an eternal vacation. Not that we're just going to be sitting around doing nothing. But this life is the preparation. We have an eternal destination that we know we're going to if you're secure in Christ. And so there should be a joy in our life that no matter what's going on here, you know what's ahead. And that's the source of your joy. It's not what you're going through right now. It's like, I know that vacation is coming and I can't wait to get there. Because with that joy comes peace. A wholeness, a well-being you can only experience from being made whole through Jesus. And again, knowing where your eternal destiny lies. What about patience or forbearance? This is so key, so key to the Christian life is, is patience. Because what this word means, it means remaining steadfast. Enduring and standing firm in your faith even in the midst of trials. So key because so many people lose their faith or walk away when they go through trials. One person described it as remaining tranquil while awaiting an outcome. I know many of you have had biopsies and MRIs and things like this. And that period between getting the results, it's nerve-wracking, isn't it? Because you don't know what it's going to show. You don't know what the doctors are going to say. But this kind of patience and forbearance, you can have a tranquility while awaiting that outcome. It also means being able to bear up under provocation. How do you react when somebody provokes you? I can tell you how my little girls react when they provoke one another. It's not good. 
found ways to use ukuleles that I weren't, didn't think were possible. But it's been able to endure through adversity. Kindness and goodness. These, these are sort of, you know, kindness. Be kind to people. Be generous to people. Goodness means being giving, being, being encouraging. Being a, a force for good in somebody's life. And then, of course, faithfulness. Faithfulness is so important because this means being trustworthy. Are you trustworthy? Are you, are you dependable? Are you reliable? Does somebody have you on speed dial? That if an emergency happens, they know they can call you and you will be there. That's faithfulness. Gentleness. This is connected to being humble. Having a sweet temperament towards other instead of a harsh, biting temperament. And then, of course, self-control. Which means exhibiting moderation and being able to check your impulses and unhealthy desires. These, these are the fruit of the Spirit. Notice fruit, not fruits. Singular, fruit of the Spirit. It's one big fruit that has different facets. These, this fruit of the Spirit, it summarizes the lifestyle of those who are indwelt and live by the Spirit. But something else about the fruit of the Spirit is, you may have noticed, they're also attributes of God. They're attributes of God. They describe God. He's loving and patient and kind and gentle. And so when we walk in the fruit of the Spirit, we're living out our true identity as image bearers of the living God. And who do we see that displayed in perfectly? Jesus. Jesus. In fact, the fruit of the Spirit has been described as a character sketch of Christ. That's the kind of fruit we want to be producing in our lives. But one last question here, how do we remain fruitful? How do we remain fruitful? Well, I want to give you two key ways we do that. And actually, it's not me giving them to you. It's Paul giving them to us because he lays it out in verses 24 and 25. There are two central things we have to do to remain fruitful in the spirit. Number one, mortify the flesh. Mortify the flesh. Mortify, that's an old word for put to death. Verse 24 of Galatians 5, Paul says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So remember that I, what I've raised in past sermons in the series is that we are in a war between the flesh and the spirit. Okay, it's a war. And when it comes to sin in our lives, we have to be ruthless. You don't give it an inch. You don't take an inch. We have to be ruthless with the sin in our lives. John Owens, a seventh century, sorry, 17th century Puritan theologian, he wrote a spiritual classic called The Mortification of Sin. And he said in that, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. It's that straightforward. Be killing sin or it will, it's not going to show you any mercy. We have to be ruthless about it. We have to crucify the flesh. And in fact, that's what Paul said earlier in Galatians 2.20, didn't he? He said, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying you need to crucify that. And actually, this is a very interesting parallel because the act of putting sin to death in our lives is similar to crucifixion. How so? One of the cruelest the most horrifying things about crucifixion is and was that it's, it's not a quick form of execution. 
You don't tend to die quickly hanging on a cross. It's not like a firing squad or, or, or hanging or lethal injection. It could take die days for you to die. And you know what? So it is with sin in our lives. You see, when we're born again and the Spirit makes his dwelling place in us, it's not like all of a sudden all our sin issues have gone. Have you noticed that? That even when you come to belief in Jesus, it's not like all of a sudden, hey, all my problems are solved. I'll, I never sin again. I'm pure. I'm clean. No, we go on and don't we? We still continue to sin. And you know why? Because it's a lifelong battle of crucifying and putting to death the sin in our lives. It's a slow death that is initiated when we accept and put our faith in Jesus. And it's completed when we finally come to the Father in eternity. And I say that as a word of encouragement because if you're still struggling with various issues in your life, know something, you've started the process of killing it. You've started the process of killing it. And you're going to get there. Do not be discouraged. Realize that the process has begun. Isaiah, <clears throat> commentator and a theologian by the name of John, uh, John Brown, unusual name, um, and he says this, quote, True Christians do not succeed in completely destroying the flesh while here below, but they have fixed it to the cross and they are determined to keep it there till it expires. That's what you've got to do. You've got to nail it to the cross and you keep it there because sometimes we can be tempted to pull it off the cross, right? And say, hey, how about I invite you back into my life? No, keep it on the cross and keep it there until it expires. So that's the first thing, remain fruitful. We must be, one, mortifying the flesh. And secondly, we must, as verse 25 says, keep in step with the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. Now, when I read that phrase, the first thing I thought of was like, well, what are examples of keeping in step? And the first thing I thought was of, was like military parades. You know, when the soldiers are walking, they're all, they're all together, they're keeping in step, they're, they're keeping in line. And lo and behold, when I looked up the Greek word that Paul uses... It is a military word, and it means staying and keeping in formation. So when we keep in step with the Holy Spirit, we are letting the Spirit guide us. We're letting the Spirit lead us, and we are following his prompting and his directions. Following the Spirit's orders, so to speak. How do we do that? Well, Jonathan Edwards famous theologian, he, he often differentiated between what he called the ordinary works of the Spirit and the extraordinary works of the Spirit. And, you know, often when we think of the works of the Spirit, we think of the works of the Spirit being, you know, being full of signs and wonders and healings and prophetic usherings and all that stuff, and certainly that stuff goes on. But often the work of the Spirit and being led by the Spirit is far less impressive, at least outwardly. It's often remarkably ordinary what does the ordinary work of the spirit look in our lives well we walk with the spirit day and day through the dis disciplines of reading scripture of praying fellowship worship sacraments and we do that day after day until it just becomes a habit keeping step with the spirit no problems because you've developed a habit of doing it and you do that, and you allow yourself to follow and to be led by the Holy Spirit in everything you do, then your life, I guarantee you, it's going to be transformed and look completely different. 
So as we wrap up this sermon series, I just want to encourage you. Strive to put to death the works of the sinful nature. Be killing the sin in you. Strive to walk in the fruit of the Spirit. And let the Holy Spirit to take, take the lead in your life. Because if you allow him to, he's going to lead you to places that you never thought were possible. Let's pray.